Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 248. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now... Tell you what, I am shattered with all this <laughs> District of Wonder stuff. <gasps> all the, I'm needing a holiday. Yeah, we've got one booked, so that's really nice. Did you see that little sneaky video I sent down the tubes the other day there? Just to give you a heads up, now District of Wonders is, is up and it's running. And all the other podcasts are running as well. Crime City Central and Projecting Project Pope. And I'm out of here. I'm going on holiday. I've had enough, honestly. <laughs> You're talking round about 200 emails a day and I'm just battered, to be quite honest. And it's just, you know what I mean? It's been a bit of a, a stressful time for us. But come on, man, look at that. Look at that website Josh has done. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, hats off to Josh. He's had to pull out three websites in a little over two weeks' time, within two weeks. And do you know what I mean? It, nothing would get done if it wasn't for Josh. So, hey, Josh, honestly, what can I say, man? It has been, and you know, like you say, to the end, it was just, I, I was saying to Josh, it was just getting hellish stressful here, and if dogs were walking past us, you know, I'd be kicking them, that's how bad it is, you know, how bad it got, but, you know, just to get everything kind of tied up, yeah, get the three, you know, the three sites up and running, and get all that, make sure the artwork's coming from Ben, which is stunning, man, have a look at that, do you know what I mean? Kenny with the, the, the kind of the video for the, the promo, 
then Josh with the you know the, the kind of the three websites just that in itself you know is like a monstrous task then to bring in you know Project Pulp and Crime City Central get enough stories you know 30 40 stories in the bag ready to go on each of them then get each you know everyone kind of up to speed on actually doing a podcast you know from the kind of the ground up basically on in some cases <laughs> I've lost about a stone in weight. There you go. And, you know what I mean? Chunky used to be a little bit chunky, not no more. You know what I mean? He's going on that beach looking rather good. So, yes, District of Wonders is now officially live. Honestly, have a look at the site. It just looks amazing, man. You know, we have got as well all the kind of social media aspects of it covered. If you go to District of Wonders, you know, you can kind of see there we've got some the Twitter homes for each of the sites and the kind of Facebook sites. And if you go on Facebook as well, there is, and this will probably be, end up being one of the main ones, is the District of Wonders kind of Facebook page. This is where every show will get released. We'll, we'll have a little bit, you know, that we'll hopefully I'm going to try and keep that one as fresh as daisies, to be quite honest. And that's where every show will be loads of content, hopefully going in that one, because that's, you know, there's four shows to kind of post about and everything like that. So please come over and have a look at, you know, the Facebook pages and the, the kind of the, the Twitter pages and everything like that. And, you know, the, the main thing, honestly, if you could pass the word around, that would be lovely. Do you know what I mean? Simple as that. Just tell everyone that it's there and up and running. And, you know, it's been making some lovely waves in the kind of, in this little genre industry there. So that's cool. Do you know what I mean? That's super fantastic. So that is, you know, Starship Sova is now kind of nestled away into, you know, she kind of now one of four in the District of Wonders, which is lovely to be quite honest. You know what I mean? And it's kind of, and it's really nice that, Hey, you know what I mean? I did that. You know what I mean? You know that B- B&Q advert where <laughs> this is like a UK DIY uh, advert on the telly. I did that. <laughs> Actually, some of my DIY stuff's hideous. But it's nice just now to say, you know, I did that. So District of Wonders, coming over and have a look. And like you say, that's the kind of hub place now where you can wander down, you know, if you don't subscribe or anything like that, or you're fancying something different, come there to District of Wonders and you can wander down the, the avenues within the district. So, yeah. So what's on today's show? Well, I'll give you a little heads up. We have Science News with our JJ Campanella. Then we have Main Fiction, which is by Grant Stone. Young Love on the Run from the Federal Alien Administration, New Mexico Division, 1984. That in itself was the title that got me with Grant. Not Grant, you know, Grant was the man who anyone knows, 2010, he accepted the Hugo Award for Starships Over. Grant, you know, is an important guy. And like I say, his writing's just turned out to be fantastic. And he's been writing for a, a quite a while there now. It's narrated as well, mind you, by Matt Sanborn Smith and Christy. And they two just make it, you know, just nail this on the head as well, you know, <laughs> samples. <laughs> then we have another, after that, we have another fact article, Theatre of the Mind by Paul Finch. And actually Paul said he can only probably see another two more of these fact articles, you know, in the works, which is a shame, you know what I mean? So if you like Paul's stuff, and I actually like it because it's just, it's so left, you know, it's so quirky, it's so, you know what I mean? And Paul's such a character as well. It's just we need more kind of Paul on the show. Then right at the end, we have first chapters, The Descendant by 
MJ Harris. Have a look out for that. I'll put links on to everything that's on the site so you can come over to the front of the website. And yes, there will be a link to District of Wonders, of course. Where actually Josh is working out how best, you know, best to kind of fit it all in, to be quite honest. So once you come on Starship Sofa, it's easy access to get to the District of Wonders. You know, it, you can just jump from there to there. And we're kind of trying to make that ubiquitous, as Jock called it. Jock, that's a lot from work. Josh calls it just over, you know, the, the kind of the four sites. So that's what's coming in today's show. First up then, sir, JJ Campanella, Science News, Jim. Now listen, now I know Jim has been busy because he said he, uh, July was one hell of a month for him. It's been as, as, as busy as mine, Jim. Hats off to you, sir. Greetings and corpsifications, my excellent listeners, and welcome to this July 2012 Science News Update. I'm your host for this shiny and fresh science podcast, Jim Campanella. Oh, I've got some amazing stories to report to you tonight. Seems like the middle of the year is a time when the really cool things start to get reported. Let me start with a story that sounds like something from World War Z, or Night of the Living Dead for that matter. The definition of actual death for an individual has shifted back and forth in the last couple of decades as we learn more about biology and genetics and neurophysiology. But neuropathologist Dr. Fabrice Chrétien at the Pasteur Institute, has now thrown the worlds of medicine and law into a complete loop with his report in late June in the journal Nature Communications. Dr. Chrétien has discovered that some populations of stem cells can stay alive in corpses for 17 days after the individual has died. The really creepy bit is that 17 days dead may not be the upper limit, The upper limit may even be higher than that because 17 days is just how old the remains being tested were. Chrétien could not get anything older at the time of his work. Chrétien wanted to learn whether stem cells could remain viable inside the body after death. Previously, it was considered unlikely that stem cells would survive longer than two days without fresh oxygen and nutrients. However, tests on the 17-day-old remains, which were stored at a cool 39 degrees Fahrenheit, that's just barely above refrigerator temps, turned up living stem cells. Specifically, they found skeletal muscle stem cells. The cells were alive but in an inactive state. That makes sense since it may be the only way for living cells to survive in an environment which is pretty hostile to continued survival. The isolated stem cells could give rise specifically to skeletal muscle and not to any other type of muscle. So they were sort of limited. However, Cretien stated, quote, A better understanding of this dormancy could help lead to new ways to help keep stem cells viable for longer periods for therapeutic purposes. They could also shed light on how cells in general respond to injuries and other traumas, If you remember from previous science updates, stem cells are multipotent parental cell lineages that can give rise to other cells in the body. That's a property that makes them extraordinarily valuable in all sorts of potential genetic therapies. These multipotent cells are often rare and only present in small numbers in tissue samples from live patients and difficult to distinguish from other cell types in many cases. Because they're so hard to get a hold of, Chrétien was investigating novel ways to procure stem cells and improve the viability of the ones he could get a hold of. Chrétien says that these cadaver-harvested stem cells are not being targeted for use in any kind of genetic disease therapies at the moment, 
which brings a sigh of relief to all those who fear a zombie apocalypse, but they could be very useful for clinical tests where there are no ethical implications about their employment. Again, one of the creepiest ideas is that if the researchers learn enough about these stem cells and their ability to survive general mortality, maybe in the future you'll be able to donate your stem cells to help others after your death, just like you can do now when you donate your organs. Chrétien's group also recovered viable stem cells from mice 14 days after their death. Again, the creepiness factor is high, but those cells appeared to function properly after they were transplanted into living mice, helping regenerate damaged tissues. Although these findings could suggest that old corpses could supply stem cells for genetic therapies, Chrétien stated that, quote, we are not saying that we will use old cadavers for treating patients for clinical applications. We won't have to wait so long for old cadavers. We can now just obtain cells from dead bodies only a few hours after death instead. Um, well, thanks, Dr. Chrétien, but... Why is that not at all comforting? The next story was reported to me first by my mother of all people because she was worried about my health. Given that she told me first, I suspect the story is already widely distributed in the public press and many of you may have already heard about this. But let me tell you again if you have heard it. The story by Dr. Jonathan Samet of the University of Wisconsin is being reported this month in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. It concerns the statistical link between sleep apnea and a risk of cancer. Sleep apnea results when a flap of skin in the throat obstructs air intake. This may be due to obesity or a malformation, as is probably my case, of the structure of the throat or nasal cavities. These problems can halt breathing during sleep for at least 10 seconds at a time. That is mild apnea. Severe apnea is marked by frequent breathing stoppages that rouse a person from deep restorative sleep and cause the individual to gasp for air. What's more, the disruptions rob cells of needed oxygen, a condition called hypoxia. Research done years ago by another group showed that the skin cancer melanoma grew faster in mice that were subjected to intermittent hypoxia than it did in mice with normal oxygen flow. That work inspired Samet to investigate cancer incidents among participants in a long-term study that began in 1988. The 1,522 participants, who were ages 30 to 60 at the start of the study, underwent an overnight sleep examination at the outset. Those tests showed that 59 people had severe sleep apnea at the beginning of the study. So 23 years into the study in 2011... Samet found that those with severe apnea were 4.8 times as likely to have died of a cancer-related cause. Samet says that, quote, severe sleep apnea is defined as having an air interruption every other minute or more, which is pretty striking, unquote. Readings taken at the beginning of the original sleep study allowed the researchers to measure how much of the night each volunteer had spent in an oxygen-deficient state. After adjusting for other risk factors, those with the most severe hypoxia were nearly nine times more likely to have died of cancer during the ensuing study years than those with normal oxygen blood. So it seems to me that the hypoxia may be involved in the induction of oncogenic activity. Well, I'm not going to whinge on about this, but now I can not only worry about getting Alzheimer's disease at some point in the future, but also lasting long enough without getting cancer to get Alzheimer's. Who was it who said, 
Life. No one gets out alive. Hmm. Anyway, next story. Quantum teleportation takes a leap forward. Chinese researchers led by Dr. John Wei Pan reported to the online journal Archive last month that they broke the record for the longest quantum teleportation yet recorded. The researchers entangled many photons together and teleported information 97 kilometers across a lake in China. That's more than 100 times farther than any other multi-photon teleportation experiment had ever been able to do. Pan also developed a way to track moving teleportation signals more accurately, which again could help to make the final result more robust. He says, quote, Our results show that even with high-loss ground-to-satellite uplink channels, quantum teleportation can be realized, unquote. If you're unsure what quantum teleportation is, let me explain. It is not exactly a Star Trek transporter, but it's still pretty cool. In quantum teleportation, two people, physicists for some reason that I do not understand, call them Alice and Bob, share one of a pair of entangled atomic particles. These can be photons or electrons or any other easily detected particles. Uh, entangled particles mean that they, they share characteristics. Alice measures a property on her particle and then sends a note to Bob through normal, non-secure channels about what she did with her particle. Now remember that part of the reason for developing quantum teleportation is to create a perfectly secure method of communication. Bob then knows how to measure his own particle to match Alice's particle, and he does that. Bob's particle then possesses the information that was contained in Alice's particle because the two Alice's and Bob's particles were linked together. They were entangled. So the information has been teleported from Alice's lab to Bob's lab. Basically, these linked pairs of particles are entangled together in such a way that measuring a certain property on one instantly determines the same property for the other, even if they're separated by huge distances. The method is absolutely secure because you can only get the information if you have the partner for the entangled particle. If you have no partner, there's no way to get the information, even if you know how to treat another particle as Alice did. Pan's next experiment will be to teleport signals to a satellite in low orbit around the Earth, and that is about three times farther than his current distant record for teleportation. The moral of the next story is no matter how right you are, you can be equally wrong. Those of you who have followed this podcast for the last couple of years will know I have predicted several times that the cost of sequencing a human genome will go below the magic $1,000 mark. I even reported a couple of months ago that this had finally come to pass, with a couple of breakthroughs in technology that allowed an entire human genome to be sequenced in parallel in just a few hours. I predicted this ability would change the world and medicine as we know it. Well, a new article in the magazine Forbes by Jim Golden reports on a lecture given by Dr. Mark Muguski of Harvard Medical School at a recent healthcare conference in Boston. Unfortunately, you're now going to receive information about that lecture third hand, but I suspect it's probably fine. At any rate, Boguski basically states in his lecture why I am completely full of bull and believing that the world will change with $1,000 genomes. Here's Buguski's key message. Quote, The time of the $1,000 genome meme is over. 
It served us well for years, driving advances in instrumentation, chemistry, and biology, but now it is reducing clinical credibility. It's time for it to leave the lexicon of healthcare. It has to go, unquote. So what is the problem with this meme? Well, here it is. The problem is no longer getting cheap sequence. The problem is what to do with your human DNA sequence once you have it. Here's the example given by Golden or Bukowski. I'm not quite sure which it is. Every year, there are about 1.4 to 1.7 million new diagnoses of cancer in the United States, for example. Many of those cancer patients are familiar with the latest advances in healthcare technology reported in the media, including insights derived from medical data and personalized medicine. Yes, that includes those of you who listen to my monthly inanity here. So now it costs about $1,000 to sequence a genome. Let's say you have a tumor that needs to be treated. First problem is that you now need two genomes to be sequenced, both the tumor and your normal tissue, so that they can be compared against each other. Well, you've now doubled the cost of sequencing. And even that's not so bad. So we are now going to go to $2,000. But that will go down in the future as sequencing gets cheaper again. However, we have a different problem. Problem number two, you cannot just bring your DNA sequence to your family physician. He will look at you like you are nuts. He's not trained in that. DNA analysis is a specialty. You need to analyze all that data and have a molecular oncologist interpret that data in terms of clinical recommendation. That's going to cost you between $25,000 to $100,000, according to Bugusky. And that cost is not covered by insurance. Ouch. And that brings us to problem number three. And probably the hardest to overcome now because there is no analysis infrastructure yet. You have to know someone who will do that analysis, even for the exorbitant amounts that I just mentioned. And that is not easy to do. DNA molecular oncologists or DNA molecular pathologists are not a dime a dozen. Right now, there are only a few people in the world educated to do the data analysis. Bugusky says that if we set the total current sequencing capacity in the U.S. against the number of new cancers each year, we can only analyze the sequences of a few percent of those patients. To get your cancer genome sequenced and analyzed, you have to have a friend at a genome center who can do the work, perform the analysis, and work with a clinical oncologist to optimize therapy. Again, according to Bogusky, that's not going to change anytime soon. Sorry, folks, to dump cold water on what I thought was a new era dawning upon us, but it may be a while longer before we'll be able to take advantage of the awesome new technology that's out there. I suspect that to get really efficient at it, it's going to take some serious DNA analysis software to be written in the future. If everyone's DNA needs to be analyzed at some point, then we are going to have to rely more on expert systems, which can be ubiquitous and less on human experts, which are not quite so ubiquitous. I guess we're going to see what the future holds. Speaking of being wrong, when the Kepler spacecraft finds a giant planet closely orbiting a star, there is a one in three chance that it's not really a planet at all. Yes, not all the exoplanets that we thought were planets are actually planets, if that makes any sense at all. These results were published in the online journal Archive last month by Dr. Claire Moutou at the University of Marseille. 
The results suggest that thousands of candidate planets may not be planets at all and need to be tested using some alternative method for discovering celestial objects in stellar orbits. Up to 35% of candidate giants snuggled close to bright stars are imposters, known in the planted hunting business as false positives. In order to detect planets, Kepler looks for the periodic dimming of starlight produced by planets passing between Earth and their home stars near the constellation Cygnus, the swan. But not everything that darkens a star is a planet. Smaller stars, for example, might masquerade as a planet. Instead of detecting periodic twinkles, the authors of the new paper looked for tiny gyrations in host stars. These are the wiggles produced by orbiting planets' gravitational tugs. Since heavy, nearby planets yank more noticeably on their stars, the team focused on giant candidates with orbits of 25 days or less. Out of more than 2,300 possible planets, only 46 fell into that category where you could actually detect the wiggles. 11 of these were already known planets, and Mutu's team confirmed nine more. Of the last 26 planetary candidates, there were two failed brown dwarf stars and 11 binary star systems, which were masquerading as planets. Mutu says, quote, Brown dwarves and binaries can clearly mimic a planetary transit event. That's why it's so important to distinguish these things when you study planets and transits from the Kepler mission, unquote. After distributing the unknowns according to the observed ratios of objects, the team arrived at the 35% false positive rate that were not planets. Now, if I was doing an experiment in a biology lab and I had a 35% error rate, I would not get any of my results published anywhere on Earth. But astronomers apparently have kind of a pass. They don't consider it a serious flaw for the Kepler spacecraft to have that 35% error rate. Mutu says, quote, This false positive percentage is very low compared to all other transit programs, unquote. So I guess that lousy is acceptable when compared to even more lousy? Is that the take-home lesson from our astronomer colleagues? I suppose. Next story. For years, neuroscientists have agreed that human tongues perceive four basic tastes. Sweet, sour, salty, and bitter, which we're all familiar with. In 2002, almost 100 years after it was discovered, the fifth receptors were confirmed for a taste called umami. Umami is commonly described as meatiness or savoriness. And now 10 years later, umami is widely accepted as the fifth basic taste. So there are five. More recently, neurobiologists and neuromolecular biologists have theorized that humans may have as many as 20 distinct receptors for such tastes as calcium, carbonation, starch, and even water. I reported on the water uh, one a few months back. However, now one contender for a sixth basic taste has begun to stand out from all the rest of them, and that is fat. In March, a paper was published in the Journal of Lipid Research by Dr. Nada Umbumrad of Washington University in St. Louis, and uh, they presented evidence that humans can also taste fat. The study examined 21 people with a body mass index of 30 or more, considered clinically obese. 
And they tasted three solutions with a similarly viscous texture and were asked to identify the one that was different. One of the solutions given to the test subjects contained a bit of fatty oil. Participants whose bodies produced more of a protein called CD36 more often picked that solution out of the lineup, suggesting that they were more sensitive to the fatty acids. Researchers speculated that this CD36 protein made people more sensitive to the taste of fat so that they perceive it in smaller amounts. If that's true, that would suggest a genetic basis for why some people crave fat more than others. It sounds like the hypothesis is is that fat people taste fat more efficiently, which helps them to become fat. Okay. A Bumrad said about this result, quote, the take-home message is that we now know there is a fat taste component, and we cannot dismiss it. It exists in humans, but how it influences behavior and fat intake, we still don't know, unquote. I want to end this segment with a recent story about science and scientists that I am pretty certain none of you has heard. If any of you think the scientists are above being petty, childish, and unfair, then think again. More often than not, scientists are serious jerks. Oddly enough, TV shows and movies are often way more correct about the personalities of scientists than about the science in any way. This story concerns Dr. David Sanders of Purdue University. I found the story in the journal Biotechniques, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with techniques of any kind. Dr. Sanders was married to Dr. Miriam Hassan, also of Purdue, and also a researcher. Doctors Sanders and Hassan did research in enzymology and protein structure. They had separate laboratories and separate grants, but they often collaborated because they had common interests. Additionally, since they were married, they were intimately acquainted with the work of the other. At one point in her work on determining the 3D structure of the enzyme butyrate kinase, Hassan hired a postdoctoral researcher by the name of Jiasheng Jiao. Dr. Jiao eventually diffracted crystals of butyrate kinase, and Hassan and Sanders published a paper on the crystallization of the enzyme which just in itself is a major biochemical breakthrough. Diao discovered two different structures of the butyrate kinase. Those structures were submitted to the online International Protein Data Bank. Dr. Hassan was diagnosed with having a brain tumor about the time that Diao was hired. Just before she died of the tumor, Diao was finished with his work in Dr. Hassan's lab. No scientific paper had been written by Diao about the actual results of his protein structure analysis. But even though Hassan had passed away, Sanders was still planning to publish her final work on the enzyme. Since enzymatic work had been done in his laboratory as well, Dr. Sanders was in charge of writing the papers because it was his field of expertise. Sanders didn't hear from Diao for a while, and then he found out that Diao had submitted an article to the Journal of Molecular Biology. Now, whenever a paper is published, it is understood that if someone's name is on it, then they gave permission to use their data. Apparently, the paper by Diao included enzymology and structural biology that he did not perform. He put the other researchers' names on it, but they knew nothing about the publication. Sanders believes 
in only publishing high-quality papers that tell complete stories. The paper from Diao was A, not high-quality, B, it did not tell the complete story. Diao wanted to publish two low-quality papers as opposed to one much more comprehensive paper. And C, worst of all, he broke a cardinal rule of science by not telling the supposed co-authors that their work was being published. When Sanders found out about Diao's essential betrayal to himself and his late wife, he contacted the editors of the journal Molecular Biology and explained the situation. They sent Sanders the reviews of the journal article and all the pertinent information about the publishing process to that point. Diao found out, in a paranoid fashion, accused Sanders of being one of the reviewers of the paper. Sanders laughed in his face, telling him it would be completely idiotic to review data from your own laboratory and never even point out to the editors that that was the case in a review. After taking a look at how far the publication process had actually gone, Sanders asked the editors to withdraw the paper for a variety of reasons, the major one being that not all the authors had agreed to the publication. The editors agreed, and the paper was withdrawn. When Diao found out about the withdrawal, he confronted Sanders and freaked out, screaming that he needed not just that publication for his career, but he needed to publish another paper based on the data he had gotten while in Hassan's lab. Sanders says, quote, he just kept repeating, I need two papers for my career. I need two papers. I must have two papers, unquote. Sanders says that after several meetings with Diao, he finally got a verbal agreement that only one high-quality paper would be published. That was agreed on by all the researchers who had been involved in the work. Sanders then started writing the scientific paper that would be submitted based on that work. After the Journal of Molecular Biology debacle, the journal and the university wanted to sanction Diao and launch a full-scale investigation against him. As I have said several times, you can't just take other people's data and publish it without their consent. By trying to publish other people's data without their consent, Diao could have been banned from any future scientific publication. It is a serious issue. Sanders said, quote, in my foolishness, I said I didn't want an investigation and that I didn't want to punish him. I wanted to publish a paper with him. He made a mistake. He's sorry. Let's just move forward. And we then had a firm agreement that we would publish one paper, unquote. Basically, Sanders made the mistake of trusting a sociopath to do the right thing. Sanders found out a couple of months later that Diao had ignored the agreement that they'd had and submitted two low-quality papers just on the work he had done to two journals, the Journal of Bacteriology and another journal called Protein. So Diao could not be accused of not getting author permission again. He stripped out the data from the other researchers and submitted the papers. These were bare bones and pretty lousy in Sanders' opinion because they lacked the entire story, and also, they made specious arguments, but apparently they were good enough for publication. Sanders said, quote, When I learned about these papers in the Journal of Bacteriology and Proteins, I contacted the editors to tell them this was a collaborative project, and he was using data and ideas generated in a collaboration. The Proteins one was held up for print publication, and the Journal of Bacteriology said that Purdue had to do an investigation. 
Their investigation found that it was indeed a collaboration, that my grants partially funded it, and that Purdue owned the data, and that I am fully in charge of the data, and that he cannot publish it without my consent. We sent that to the journals, and they retracted the papers. Unquote. Because Diao insists he needs two papers and refuses to cooperate with Sanders to publish just one decent paper, the upshot is, is that no paper is ever likely to be published on his work. This means that the good Dr. Diao will not get any papers out of his postdoctoral work with Dr. Hassan. Sanders says, quote, We are not going to publish as far as I'm concerned. I could get someone to crystallize the protein from scratch and redo the whole project and publish it, but that's not fair to whoever I assigned to do that since it's already been done, and it's not right. It's a shame that it will not be published. As I said, there are a number of interesting elements to the structure. Unquote. Welcome to the world of scientific research, ladies and gentlemen. It is not always pretty. Unsurprisingly, Diao refused to speak with Biotechniques to give his side of the story, I suspect because he has no excuses for what he did other than his sociopathic need for two publications. Dr. Diao, if you ever listen to this podcast, I have chaired many, many search committees for my university, and if I ever see your name on a job application, let me tell you that it is not likely that you will ever get a job with us. Good luck out there. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Don't count your gas giants before they're hatched. Keep a close eye on your postdocs, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go very much, Jim. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Next up is the main fiction, and like I say, it's from Grant Stone. Young Love on the Run from a Federal Alien Administration, New Mexico Division, 1984. This is actually published in Strange Horizons over there as well. Now, I'm not, at this time of recording this, I'm not too sure what's going on with Strange Horizons. I know there was a few emails and a few press releases going around that they're kind of totally changing the kind of the people that was working on board Strange Horizons, and I'm not sure is it still up and running. Do you know, I'll put a link on the Strange Horizons. You know, if anyone can tell us, then I can kind of pass that message on that everything's still hunky dory at Strange Horizons. Give a little heads up. You know, if you don't know Grant, here's these kind of professional blurb. Grant Stone's fiction has appeared in Andromeda Spaceways, In Flight Magazine, Shimmer, and was twice won. Has twice twice won. I did. God, I didn't know it. The Sir Julius Vogel Award. He lives half the year in Auckland, New Zealand, and half the year on the internet. Like I say, this sto- story is narrated by Christy Yance and Matt Sanborn Smith. But what can I say, Matt? You know what I mean? Beware the hangy, hairy man. <laughs> Beware the hairy mango. The man is on something there to go at this kind of speed as well. I would just love to kind of sit down with Matt and have it. And the same with Christy Yant as well. You know what I mean? We live so far from one another. It's just scary. But, you know, Christy's been on and done. Last week, the, or a couple of weeks ago, John Joseph Adams had a story on from his site as well, and Christy narrated that as well. So, Christy, and I see Christy's, you know, still branching out, being a writer as well. She's in some anthologies as well. So, Christy, 
good luck, honestly, good luck. And maybe one day, you know what I mean? Or maybe one day when technology gets us so we can kind of see each other, that would be fantastic. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Young Love on the Run from the Federal Alien Administration, New Mexico Division, 1984, by Grant Stone, narrated by Matthew Sanborn-Smith and Christy Yant. Happy Texas. The door's already half open, so we can just nudge it with his foot and go on holding her. Roland steps over the threshold. Couple more steps, then he lays her down on the bed. Hey there, Mr. Mayfield. Hey there, Mrs. Mayfield. She reaches out a slender arm, the same pale blue as his tux, and pulls him down into a kiss. Oh, he jumps up. I gotta call them. She goes out looking for something to eat. Roland twirls the phone cord around his finger and listens to the ring. He looks around the room. It's pretty shitty. Besides the bed, there's a TV fixed to the ceiling, a fridge he can hear humming even from over here, and a chair the same chocolate brown as the carpet. The phony is calling his beige and sits on a small table next to the stairs in a house in a tree-lined street in Burbank. He imagines his mother putting down the duster and hurrying downstairs like he's seen her do a million times before. His dad won't be back from work yet. Her voice is nearly drowned under crackles on the line. It sounds to Roland like applause, as if she were being filmed in front of a live studio audience. Mom, it's me. I'm married. Mom? I'm here. A sniff. Then... What a surprise. I know, Mom. I'm sorry I didn't tell you before. It was... Oh, but you gotta meet her. We're on our way out to see you now. She comes through the door then, backwards, arms full, balancing two plates of burgers and fries, two beers glistening cold. Mom, I gotta go, I'll... Roland, what's her name? He tells her. As he does, he knows he's done this all wrong. It's an unusual name. Is she from Europe? Something like that. More silence. Then... I love you, Roland. We'll see you soon, okay? Go on. No, he says, but he doesn't really mean it. They're lying in bed. She waves the last cold bottle in front of his eyes like a bell. You want this? He sighs. Okay. So what do I need to do? Just... She puts a hand on his cheek and sees through his eyes. You hadn't planned on getting married. You're driving west on I-40, keeping a nervous eye on the gas. Your dad wired the money when you said you wanted to drive home instead of flying, and the Dotson had seemed like a good idea back in Boston. But out here, somewhere between Amarillo and Albuquerque, the sun beating on the roof... She appears out of the heat haze, pulling a suitcase with tiny wheels through the dirt at the side of the road. She hears you coming and puts up her thumb. She's wearing a red-checked shirt, tied high on her blue midriff. Her skin is the color of the sky, and the realization makes you nearly crash the car right there. You pull over, push your sunglasses up into your hair, trying to play it cool. I was cool. No, you weren't. Hey, you say, and she smiles. Looking at her is like looking at the moon. Suddenly her mouth is too dry to speak. So where are you going, she says. West, um, you swallow. California. Your hands are slick on the steering wheel. Um, need a ride? She pulls her hand away. How is that? His head tingles a little. It's not an unpleasant sensation. How do you... She shrugs and hands over the beer. We all can. It's just what we do. Does it work the other way? She rolls over, straddles him, puts her palm on his chest, and he gasps. The light divides as it passes through the protection field, so you sit, cross-legged in a rainbow. The craft is an oval six feet wide and twelve long. 
The bow is fringed with raised nodes, and from here it looks like you're resting in an upturned palm. Beyond the protection field is space, where they play all around you, above and below, your brothers and sisters. It's not a formation, more of a chaotic swarm as they dart and zigzag across your field of vision. Ten million of them in this cloud, and you know them all by name. This is you? She shakes her head. No, my mother gave it to me. So you've never been up, out? No, she pulls on the beer. I'm a natural-born American, same as you. He can't stop laughing. What? God bless America, he says between stifled giggles. She pours the rest of the beer out on his chest, and he still can't stop laughing. Sholo, Arizona What can I get you, hon? She flicks the menu with a blue finger. Maple syrup. The waitress pops her gum and squints through the morning sun, bored. Yeah, but on what? Pancakes? Waffles? Just the maple syrup. Hash browns, Roland says. And pancakes. She's wearing denim pedal pushers and a man's leather jacket over a plain white tee. A black mink pillbox hat, blonde wig, sunglasses. She's fooling nobody. Two blonde kids are climbing all over their seats, pointing and shouting, while their mom and dad deliberately stare at the table. She swipes her finger across the plate to collect the last of the syrup. We're being followed. Two guys over there. Don't look. He looks. Two men in gray suits, menus held in front of their faces, looking just as incongruous as the blue-skinned girl in the pillbox hat. What do we do? She touches his hand. Stay cool, says her voice in his head. She waves the waitress over. Ma'am, where's the bathroom? Roland carefully arranges a spoon on the table so he can see the men without turning around. There's some movement when she gets up. The taller man elongates in the reflection, but then sits down again. Roland looks out the window, trying to act calm. There's a gray sedan in the corner of the parking lot, and now that he looks at it, he realizes he's seen it before. It's been following them since at least U.S. 60. She slides back into the booth five minutes later. Okay, just follow my lead. She calls the waitress over and asks for the check, smiles and tilts her head to the side. Whatever you do, don't look at them, she whispers. And then they're up and walking. Roland stares at his shoes. The tiles on the floor remind him of the first Elvis Costello album. He hears the bell above the door when they're halfway across the parking lot, but he's still cool, doesn't turn around, grabs the keys out of his jacket pocket. The ignition turns over first time and he's ready to floor it, but she holds up a hand. Wait, she flips the cassette over and presses fast forward. Are you kidding? We gotta get away. She pulls a couple of spark plugs from her pocket and puts them in his lap. We've got time. Ah, here it is. Tears for fears. Everybody wants to rule the world. She turns it up. The drums come in and the Datsun's tires kick up dirt. The guys in the gray suits finally figure out why the car won't turn over and start running, but it's too late. They're left at the entrance to the parking lot, coughing up dust. She hoots and leans out the window. The wind grabs her hat and whips it behind them before she can catch it. It lies on the road like a stranded turtle. We can't run forever. Keep going and we'll get to California, then what? They are lying on the hood of the dots and staring up at the stars. We keep going. He snorts. <laughs> what, when we get to the end of the road, we just drive off the Santa Monica Pier? She passes him the bottle of Thunderbird and points a long blue finger at the center line of the blacktop. Then she points straight up. After that, she starts trashing televisions. Wickenburg, Arizona. RCAs and Zeniths hit the floor. Magnavoxes and Mitsubishis spill across carpets like eviscerated corpses. She traces her finger through television guts like an auger, picking out this capacitor, that resistor, leaving the rest a trail of glass and plastic carcasses for the motel cleaning staff to find. 
Roland goes to Radio Shack and buys a soldering iron, screwdrivers, some plastic boxes to keep track of all the liberated components that are rolling around the back of the car. She sits cross-legged in the middle of the floor, soldering components to a breadboard. A thin line of smoke rises, but it's not enough to trouble the smoke detector, assuming the room has one. The air conditioning's busted. She pushes up the red and white bandana that's holding her hair out of her face and rolls a Budweiser across her forehead. He lies on the bed and watches. It's an emergency beacon, crammed into the husk of a Panasonic cassette player. Once it's finished, she'll flip the switches duct-taped on the side and press the play button. Every now and then she turns it on and watches numbers scroll across the screen ripped from a Casio digital watch, scowls, turns it off again. When she gets it right, it will signal the mothership, if there's a mothership. She thinks there's a mothership, but the smile she gives him, trembling slightly at the corners, shows she's not completely sure. What was it like, he asks, in the facility? She doesn't say anything for a long time. Cold, she says. They're sitting outside the Wickenburg Tasty Freeze, gotta be 80 in the shade. Her voice trembles. They keep it cold because it makes us slow, messes up the communication too, but it's how they make sure we don't run. He looks out across the street, at the flag hanging limp on its pole, not sure what to say. When they need one of us, they come into the habitat in these suits with thick gloves and helmets. They pick up whoever's closest to be thawed. She strokes his arm and puts a picture in his head. A suit that thick, you could probably walk across the seafloor in it. The guy steps over a bunch of blue-skinned kids huddled together in a pile. They smile and scatter. They're not afraid of him. There must be maybe 30, 40 of them, lying on cots or standing in small groups. It's a big room. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Room, amazingly tiny. The matte white paint that covers the floor, the walls, ceiling. The government man reaches out to you and pulls you to the door. Nobody even bothers to look up. Soon as you're out in the hallway, you can feel the warmth and your mind reaches out. There's not a lot of color out here, but there's always some. A bright yellow sheet of paper attached to a brown cork notice board with a red pin. Blue bubbles in the water cooler. The pewter of the waste paper basket. 
yellow and orange and brown of a Reese's Pieces wrapper. By the time you round the corner and another government man grabs your other arm, you feel like you can tear the whole building down. The sense room is on the second floor, right in the center of the building. It's built around a glass enclosure, top open to a sky that's such a deep blue you gasp. The sun is sweet on your skin as you step into the sense cage and a government man closes the door behind you. The men in suits go to the very back of the room, like that's going to stop you reading them. The one on the left is cheating on his wife. You sneer at him as you pull the images from him like it's nothing. The one on the right is smarter. He's wearing a Walkman under the helmet, blasting Christopher Cross. If you really cared, you could get past it. The door opens and the agent comes in, Williams. Not wearing a suit because A, there's no way in hell he'd be caught in something so lacking in style, and B, he doesn't give a shit if you can see into his head. He wants you to see. Williams opens the door to the sense cage. How you doing, he says as he hands over a manila folder. His fingers brush yours as he hands the folder over, and as he does, you get a flash of a burned corpse lying in a Cambodian field. Thinks he's a badass, and maybe he is, but thing is, he can't touch your good time. Because you're fully thawed now, and you could give a shit about this company asshole when you can feel your consciousness rising, already a mile above Roswell. You reach your warm mind down to your brothers and sisters in the cold room, feel them stir just a little. They reach back with their thin, cold tendrils of being. Soon, you hope, you'll get the chance and run, smuggling out as many of them as you can carry in your mind. But not today. You open the folder. Blurry black and white photos of a guy getting out of a car. The photo doesn't show any more of the car than the top. Lotta Sedan, registration number 5559MH, you say, and Williams checks his cross-reference sheet, nods and presses record. The twin wheels of the tape start spinning and you sit back in your chair and start talking Russian. It's a good few minutes later before Roland realizes she's turned off the image and he's just staring across the road. He doesn't say anything for a long time. Back in the motel room, she takes another look at the circuit. We gotta go back, she says. Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's one of them? She nods. He squints against the sun at a small black box on the top of the lamppost. There's another one every two or three posts all the way up the street. Can't we get one from somewhere less public? You said they're all over the state. She shakes her head. The boxes talk to each other. It might be easier to take one if it's sitting all by itself further out from the facility, but it will leave a bigger hole in the mesh. They'd spot it straight away. This one's so close to the others they might not notice. It's 9.30 in the morning. The street isn't exactly bustling with traffic, but there's no way he'll be able to get up there and pull it off without being seen. He just stands there, rubbing his hands together. Come on, you pussy, she says, and a couple of seconds later he's got his legs wrapped around the pole, hanging on with one hand, and smacking the black box with the tire iron from the Datsun. He can hear something now that he's this close to it, a static hiss like the end of a tape. He keeps on hitting it, and every time he does it seems like the sound travels all the way down the street. People are looking now. One guy in particular makes his heart freeze. He looks again. The guy is wearing a gray suit, but it's not one of those gray suits. Roland keeps beating on the box. Come on, she calls from the sidewalk. One final whack and the box comes loose. It tumbles to the ground, trailing a couple of wires and crumbs of plastic. She catches it, but he trips when he drops down, crashes into her. The box flies from her hands and smashes on the street, loses a few more pieces. Hey, someone shouts from behind him, some concerned citizen. 
She picks up the box and runs the other way. The car is just around the corner. He leaves the tire iron lying on the sidewalk and hobbles after her. She's jimmied the box open with a screwdriver before they've gone a couple of blocks. Roland steals a glance. The circuitry is like nothing he's ever seen before. Rows and rows of black ICs, far smaller than a Z80 or 6502. That's the transmitter, she says, pointing to something bronze and lotus-shaped. The sun goes down. She's still working on the box when he falls asleep. Her sobbing wakes him around three, but when he asks what's wrong, she doesn't say a thing. Then he notices she's kicked the pieces of the box across the floor. You don't really love me. You just love the idea of me. That's not true. Yes, it is. Too many hours lying in front of the television watching Star Trek when you were ten. That's not. He starts again, puts his hand on her shoulder. Look at me. You can read my memory, sure, but not my feelings. I love you. I will never leave you. Yes, you will. Their first argument. He'll remember it years later while he's sitting on the bleachers watching his nephew's Little League game. Only then will he realize she started it deliberately, wanting to turn him against her just a little, to try and make it easier somehow, when the men in the gray sedan caught up with them. He'll sit there, staring into space while his nephew makes his first home run and nearly miss the whole thing. His brother will elbow him in the ribs. He'll snap back just in time to see the boy slide into home. The men in gray suits come the next day. 8 a.m. Air conditioning busted in this room as well, so the window has been open all night. The men in gray cut the engine before they pull in and let the car roll to a stop in the middle of the forecourt. But the squeak of tires wakes him up. When the car door opens, she sits straight up in bed. A couple of seconds later, she runs for the bathroom, but it's already too late. An agent kicks in the door with a gray vinyl zip-up shoe, lobs a black ball on the bed. Roland dives away, thinking tear gas, but nothing comes out except a high-pitched whine. Then his face is pressed down into the carpet, and he's sucking in years of dust and cigarette ash, and there's an agent shouting in his ear, only he can't hear anything. He can feel the agent's breath on his throat, and the smell of coffee mixes in with the carpet filth, but there's no sound. He twists his head and sees an agent emerge from the bathroom, holding her in his arms. She's not moving. Roland struggles to get to his feet, nearly does, even though the agent's knee is crushed into his spine. He lashes out and up. He can't see, but he can feel his knuckles connect with something. He can't bring his arm back down. The agent grabs his wrist and gives him some kind of jujitsu twist, and suddenly Roland is lying on his back. There's got to be 20 agents in the room now, all wearing gray. The glasses of the agent straddling him are hanging askew, one lens missing. Lucky punch, Roland thinks. Then the agent gives him one of his own, and... Roswell, New Mexico. Can I see her? We've been through this. The man on the other side of the table is tall and heavily tanned. His sunglasses are mirrored, just like the wall to Roland's left. A badge is pinned to his shirt, giving his name, Jurgensen. FAA is printed discreetly below that, along with a silhouette of an alien head, the distended forehead, tapered chin, and empty black eyes, the lie they want the public to swallow. Roland's jaw, his whole head actually, is throbbing. They gave him some Excedrin a while back. It's not working. Can I see her? The agent takes off his glasses and rubs the bridge of his nose. The United States government does not recognize the existence of extraterrestrials nor their presence on Earth. She's my wife, damn it! No, she's not. Roland clenches his fist and looks toward the floor-to-ceiling mirror on the right wall. The other agent is older. His name badge says Owens. No alien head on this one. He rubs his hands through his salt and pepper crew cut. 
Look, son, I'm not going to bullshit you. I'd like to help you. Really, I would. But it's the rules, you know? He shrugs and gives him the old, what are you going to do, grin? And Roland wonders if he understands somehow what it's like to be in love with a woman who holds her mother's memories of flying between the stars in a craft shaped like an upturned palm, who can read his thoughts and sings along with tears for fears and leaves a trail of disemboweled televisions the length of New Mexico. And just like that, it's all too much. No, he says, trembling. I don't know. You have no right to keep... He pounds his fist, bam, on the metal table. You have no right to keep them locked up like that. He stands up, kicking the chair across the linoleum. Sit down, Mr. Mayfield. He's pacing the room next to the mirror. From this close, he can see shadowy people on the other side of the glass, and he slams into it with his shoulder. Owen stands. Mr. Mayfield, you need to calm down now. If this was a movie, he'd be strong and cool and powerful, but he's crying. His nose is running, and he can't stop shaking. You keep them like animals. He nearly trips over the chair and kicks it away from the wall. That's not true. And suddenly the room's full of agents. Front of the pack is a guy with butterfly stitches under his right eye, the guy he hit back in the motel. Roland recognizes him from the vision she gave him in Wickenburg, flinches at that sense memory of burned flesh. William smiles slowly like a leopard. What's her name, Mr. Mayfield? What? Your wife, he spits out the word. What is her name? Roland opens his mouth, stops. He can't remember. Nasty little trick, that, putting words in your head. Did she ever tell you about the shared mind, Mr. Mayfield? The dynamic transfer of consciousness? We've got a mesh thrown over them like a net around here, but as soon as you two got out of range, the blues started collapsing. Still got three in comas now. You just took America's most important strategic asset for a joyride. Roland crumples in the corner and covers his face with his hands. They throw him in a holding cell where, somehow, he falls asleep. When he wakes up, his dad is standing in the doorway wearing a gray suit and a visitor's badge. Come on, son. Time to go. All way out of the facility, his dad grips his arm. People wave at his dad as they go. Hey, Bill. Someone calls out as they cross the cafeteria, and his dad winces, pushes him down onto the nearest spare seat. Don't you move a fucking muscle, he whispers into Roland's ear, and it's the first time he's ever heard his father swear. Dad walks over to a man with a gray-sided army-issue crew cut. Roland picks up fragments. Don't know how you do things over Lockheed, but I swear he had no idea. Christ sakes, Bill, what if the Russians had got hold of it? You know how close the DCI came to shutting down the whole thing last year? We can't afford this kind of shit. Roland gets it then. If the DCI shut down the facility, what are they going to do with the aliens? She never had a chance. The White Room is as good as it gets. Dad drives the rental car from Roswell to Albuquerque. They reach the motel and Dad picks up Roland's stuff from the desk, the car keys for the Datsun. They follow the I-40 for the rest of the day and into the night. Roland jerks awake as they pull into a motel at 2 a.m. Dad pulls a pillow from the bed and ambles over to the couch. You take the bed, he says, the first thing he said since Roswell. I'm sorry, Roland says, no more than a whisper. Get some sleep, Dad says and turns off the light. A few minutes after that, he hears his dad pick up the phone. I've got him. He says, then, yeah. He can hear his mother still talking as dad hangs up the phone. The room is completely dark except for the floating orange star that is the end of dad's cigarette. He's too tired to cry. Burbank, California. His mother is running towards him before he's even got the seatbelt off, yanks him out of the car and wraps him in an embrace like a prize fighter. I'm sorry, he gasps between great heaving sobs like the end of the world. I'm sorry. He lifts his head from her shoulder and looks down the tree-lined street. 
He can hear shouts from a few houses away, the Dorset twins playing under the sprinkler. There's a Cessna buzzing above, pulling a Coke banner. The sky is the color of cigarette smoke. He's home. His mother puts her arms around him and takes him into their house, and when he looks up, twenty years have passed. He goes back to college but drops out six months later, wanders aimless, falling in and out of work and relationships. If he'd stayed in college, he could have been working at Apple or Microsoft, but he ends up at Radio Shack, walking between shelves of resistors and capacitors and batteries. He gets married again. His parents, divorced now, sit smiling in the front row. There are no children. The marriage falls apart after ten years in the Denny's on Alameda between the surf and turf and the ice cream sundae. She takes the keys to the car and goes, and part of him knows he should follow, but he sits as the late afternoon sun sparkles the dust motes and watches her go. Twenty years pass and nothing changes. Roland puts the beer down and takes another look at the cassette deck splayed on the workbench. Smoke rises from the soldering iron like the cigarettes that were the death of his father. He pokes it at a fat gob of solder and works a resistor out of its grip, trying yet another connection, another configuration. The innards of the black box are in the tackle box at his side, each piece labeled. He's learned enough over the years to identify most of the components, but he's still never seen anything like the lotus-shaped thing in the center of the board. It's a warm August evening, so he's got the garage door open to the street. He's concentrating so intently he doesn't notice the car pulling into his driveway, doesn't turn around until he hears the driver get out and walk over to him. First thing he notices when he turns around are those gray shoes. There are a few wrinkles, but not many. A white scar beneath his right eye. Apart from that, Williams looks exactly the same. There were entire years when Roland couldn't sleep, stayed awake with his rage, imagining what it would feel like to smash this man's head against one of those white walls. But now here he is, and Roland just stands there. Williams sees the electronics spread across the bench and grunts. Never got it to work, huh? Roland says nothing. Williams walks closer. Don't worry, Mr. Mayfield. I'm not here in an official capacity. Retired. Retired? His voice no more than a whisper. You want to see my bus pass? Roland finally closes his mouth. We closed it down in the 90s, the Roswell facility. After the wall came down, he shrugs. By then, it wasn't working so well anyway, the listening. Maybe they'd been here too long. Whatever it was. What happened to them? Moved to another facility. We had three others besides Roswell. Budget cuts. Then one day, they just went away. Roland closes his fist tighter around the soldering iron. What do you mean? Williams doesn't flinch. Keep your powder dry, son. We didn't do anything. I saw the security camera footage myself. One moment they're there, the next. He raises his hands like birds. Guess they finally found a way home. She thought there was a mothership. She was there at the end, William says, answering the question Roland doesn't have the courage to ask. And he gasps, a half sob. Maybe she's out there now, surfing between the stars. The other man looks down, fishing in the pocket of his suit. Everything's classified, of course. They could put me away for what I've already said. But she's your wife. Williams tosses something and Roland catches it without thinking, rolls it over in his hand, the same copper material as the lotus on the circuit board. This piece is in the shape of an upturned palm. The boxes are dampeners. You might have had that radio working the whole time, but without that, the signal wouldn't get further than the door. And with it, Williams puts his sunglasses back on. Have a nice life, Mr. Mayfield. Roland watches as Williams drives away, imagines he can hear it all the way to the interstate. He turns back to his workbench. And there you go. Don't forget, Grant is copyright. 
Don't go, you know, being cheeky. And a big thank you to Matt and Christy. Christy, thank you so much. Matt, hats off to you, sir. Next up is Theatre of the Mind with Paul Finch. Paul, take it away, Squire. Having recorded the main body of this, I've come back to do the intro and the outro, and I feel I must apologise as my uh, delivery is even worse than normal, as I've had to resort to codeine to get me to sit in front of a microphone. See how I suffer to bring you this. And my opiate-based painkillers may be great for producing jazz, for uh, recording fact articles not so good. Journey into space. Journey into Space was the creation of Charles Chilton, writing as well as producing it. He also produced The Goons. The first series, Operation Luna, was broadcast in 1953 and was set in the distant future when humans were just moving out into space. The year is 1965. There were 18 episodes, but when it was re-recorded in 1957, the first four episodes were dropped. This is not much of a loss, as they are still not taken off. Yes, it seems so slow. Things were very different way back in the middle of the last century. If you like fast-paced action, then this is so not the programme for you. But if you like to get submerged into a story, then you will love the second story, The Red Planet. As at times you feel it is running in real time. 20 episodes, and they reach Mar- don't re- reach Mars until episode 10. No warp drive, not even an impulse engine. They used proper rockets in 1954. The third part, Earth in Peril, also has 20 episodes and went out in 1955. It is a direct continuation of The Red Planet. After a gap of 16 years, a new 90-minute one-parter was broadcast in 1981, The Return from Mars. Then there was another gap of 27 years and another episode, The 60-minute Frozen in Time, and just one year later, another hour-long episode, The Host. Chilton used his experience from working on The Goon Show and made the sounds almost another member of the cast. Operation Luna In the, in the first episodes that were dropped from Journey to the Moon, as it originally known, or as it became when re-recorded Operation Luna, it's 1965 and Jet's father launches his A-24 rocket, but something goes wrong and the rocket hits Las Vegas. <laughs> not before time, killing 35 people and the project is shut down and Jet is invited to join the Operation Luna project. So now it starts with the rocket Luna setting off to the moon. Get up and get to work on that radio. Yes, Jet. Oh, soon as you like. News from home will make me feel a lot better. Well, get going. Oh, oh, here. Oh, 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 oh. Lemmy. Oh, he's <laughs> drifting up to the ceiling. Jet. Get me down! Help! <laughs> Don't panic, Lemmy. Serves you right for getting off your bed without your boots on. Surely you know better than that. Well, all I did was bend down to pick them up and I, I shot straight up here. You should have held onto your couch when you reached out for them. Well, can't you throw them up to me? Pull yourself down by the rail, Lemmy. That will get you within easy reach of your bunk. Oh, 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 just the move makes me feel worse. I, I feel just like a feather. Well, you certainly don't weigh anymore. None of us do. Yeah, is it going to be like this all the way to the moon? I'm afraid so, Lemmy, but you'll get used to it. Now pull yourself down. It's slowly, not too hard, or you'll hit the floor. Like this? Yeah, that's it. Now put your magnetized boots on, Lemmy. Yeah. In fact, I think we'd all better put them on. Okay, right. Jim. Okay, and keep them on. Keep them on at all times while zero gravity conditions last. What you? Lemmy, in particular, seems woefully unprepared for a trip into space. Anywho, 
Radio contact is lost and Lemmy hears odd music several times on in the journey. Just before blasting off from return trip, they lose all power and the UFO lands. They finally manage to take off and orbit the moon, when over the dark side a fleet of UFOs pursue them and then accelerate Luna to an incredible speed and after blacking out they find they are in deep space with no sign of Sol. The Red Planet takes place six years later in 1971 and tells the Mars fleet, the flagship, dis flagship discovery, eight freighters and 20 men. And it's a troublesome journey to Mars and a uh, the discovery on Mars of a valley and a ruined city. There they find that there are humans already living on Mars. Mitch becomes separated from the others and meets a man who claims to be a dingo hunter who believes he is living in Australia in 1939. Here, drink this. Come on, chum, it'll put new life into you. Hey. Oh, where am I? What am I doing here? I might ask you that. What are you doing out there in the sun without even a hat on? Where'd you come from? I'm lost. That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? Last night, a, a dingo hunter invited me to his camp, and, and then he tried to kill me. But I managed to beat him off. And then he turned a pack of dingoes onto me, and I had to run for it. He said there was a cattle station nearby. I tried to find it. You did? This is the only station within 100 miles of here? Yeah, but you only just made it. My dog found you outside lying on the ground. You must be all in. I feel it. Then you stay in that bed till you feel better. Oh, but I can't stay long. I must find the others. Well, don't tell me there's somebody else lost out there. No, they're not lost. It's only me that's lost. But Well, I must find them. They'll soon be giving me up for dead. Well, who are these people? A jet, Doc and Lemmy. You see, one of our ships crashed and we came in this direction searching for its crew. A ship in the middle of the outback? Yeah, a spaceship. We set out from the moon last April. Landed here just over a week ago. You set out from the moon? Well, of course, to have taken off from Earth would have been impracticable. Oh, yes, yes, I expect it would. That's a funny-looking dog, isn't it? Well, he's no thoroughbred, but he's not all that funny. Looks more like an overgrown beetle. A beetle? Here, have another drink and try to sleep. Maybe you'll feel better when you wake up. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I'll pull the curtain to keep the sun out of the room and leave you alone for a bit. You need to be quiet if you're to sleep. Look, I, I don't want to sleep. I, I must find Jet and Doc and... We'll and... call up Doc for you. Maybe he'll fly over and pick you up. Oh, well, it's very kind of you. Do you know the frequency our ship works on? Oh, sure, we know the frequency. We use it often. Come on, Martha, let the man rest. Yes, John. He's mad, stark, raving mad, saying that Bob looked like a beetle. No, Martha, he's got a touch of the sun. He's delirious. Now, look, I'll go out back and start peddling. You call up the flying doctor and ask him to get over here as quickly as possible. Tell him it's urgent. The World in Peril takes place one year later, in 1972. Discovery and only two surviving freighters return to the moon. Shows what happened in the last one. Discovery is refitted and returns to Mars, where they were driven back by a fleet of Martian spheres on course to invade Earth. They are then captured and taken onto one of the craft. Oh, give myself a clump every time I move. Now, why should that be? Something above me head, that's why. Now, fill it with your hands, Lemmy boy. Easy now. Oh, no wonder. There's no point in trying to sit up. Sideways, that's it. Get off this bed sideways. Oh, no. Something on that side as well. What is this? Oh, oh. Now, now, mate, take hold of yourself. You've got three other sides to go yet. Now. Oh, oh, nothing there. Oh, thank goodness. Now, put one foot over the side and feel for the floor. 
That's it. Now, easy now. Just a little further, a little further, and... Uh, oh, where is it? What's happened to the floor? It's a nightmare. That's what it is, horrible dream. I'll wake up in a minute, find myself back in the discovery with Doc. Doc! Doc! Uh, oh. Hey, what's that? Who's there? Oh, oh Doc! Is that you, Doc? Let, let me... Where are you? Oh, it is, Doc. Oh, thank goodness. What's happened to us? What's happened to the lights? Where are we? In the discovery, I hope. I don't think we are, Doc. Are you lying on some kind of a bed? Uh, yeah, I am. Then don't try to get up. You'll only crack your head if you do. Oh, thanks for the warning. And don't try to find the floor. There isn't one. What? Feel around, Doc. Feel about with your hands. Don't move until you have. Uh, doing it now. Well? Oh, there's nothing above me at all. Hey? And there is a floor. I can feel it. And I must be lying on this bed upside down. But where are we? This can't be the discovery. What's happened to the lights? Why is it pitch black? It is pitch black, Doc. Isn't it? Yeah, Lemmy, it is. Oh, it can't be just me, then. For a minute, I thought maybe oh, I'd if come... if you had, I have too. Is, is, is that you, Doc? What? That's Jet. Doc, that's Jet's voice. Lemmy. Yes, mate. Where are you? Where are you? I, I can't see a thing. Uh, neither can Lemmy or I, Jet. Uh, are you lying on some kind of a bed? Uh, yes, I am. But how did I get here? That's what we've been trying to figure out. Return from Mars. After more than 30 years in space and missing presumed dead, the crew finally returned to Earth. Flight 127, Sydney to London. Ready for landing. Procedure over. Hello, Flight 127. Your landing point is runway 17. Please switch to automatic navigation and landing. Switching now. Hello, Earth. Eh? Hello, Control. Discovery calling. What was that? I didn't say anything. I think we have some interference. Hello, Control. Receiving your strength Whoever you are, you're interfering with London Landing Control. Please check your transmitter frequency and clear this channel. Did you say Landing Control? Yes. Oh, good. This is Discovery. Who? The Discovery. Flagship of the Martian fleet. On his way home. Hey, Harry. I've got a fellow on here who thinks he's the flagship of a Martian fleet. Somebody's having you on. Well, listen. Hello, Earth. Discovery calling. Come in, please. Get the supervisor. Right. Hello, Flight 127. We're definitely receiving interference. Will you please switch to Channel 7 and request landing procedure from there? Message understood. Thank you. Hello, Discovery. Supervisor, London Centre Air Control calling. Hello, Control. Receiving you strength force. You've come up on the wrong frequency and are causing serious interference. Will you please retune your transmitter and clear this channel? I'd be delighted if you could tell me which frequency to tune to. Your allocated control frequency. I've done that. Tried to raise them for two days. No reply. Two days? Which control centre were you calling? Horseshoe Range, Northern Territory, Australia. Australia? Are you sure? That's the one I always use. Hang on, I'll check the station lists. Horseshoe range, did he say? Yes, Northern Territory. Well, here it is. Wait a minute. Well? There was such a place. Was? It was closed down 30 years ago. What? Whoever it is out there is not going to get any landing help from Horseshoe. Hello, Discovery. Go ahead. Are you the captain of your aircraft? No, and we're not an aircraft. We're a spacecraft. Can I have a word with your captain? Certainly. Hello, Control. Captain Morgan here. What's the trouble? It appears you are calling on a disused frequency. It's the one we were allocated. When did you last use it? When we left Mars for home about six years ago. Six years? To get from Mars? Did you go by way of Pluto? Well, we're not sure how long we've been away, but in less than 24 hours from now, we'll be entering the Earth's atmosphere and looking for a landing place. You have automatic navigation and landing system? ASN method. Never heard of it. The very latest thing when we left Earth. 
I'll have to refer this matter to Central Command. Can you let me have a few more details about yourself and your crew, your ship, for identification purposes? Certainly. I am Captain Jet Morgan. This is the Discovery, flagship of the former Martian fleet. My crew consists of Dr. Matthews, Flight Engineer Mitchell, and Radio Operator Barnett. Thank you. I'll call you again in a few minutes. Morgan? Did he say Jet Morgan? Yes. Well, I've heard of him. Oh? He's a big hero in his day. Led the first exploratory expedition to Mars. Apparently set out for home, but was never heard of again. How long ago? Well, 30 or 40 years. Everybody assumed he and his ship were lost. Hello, Discovery. Receiving you, strength five. I have spoken to Central Command. This is what you must do. Retune to your old control frequency. They will listen out for you and give you full instructions for landing. At horseshoe? No, that is no longer in use. They will allocate another landing point somewhere else in Australia. You will then be brought to London by Stratoship. What's that? It's part airplane, part spaceship. Best thing for long-distance earthbound flights. Air travel seems to have forged ahead while we've been away. But thank you for your information. We'll do as you say. Good luck. Is it really them? Jet Morgan and his crew? Back from the dead? We'll know tomorrow, if they make a safe landing. Frozen in time. This time, the role of Jet Morgan is played by David Jacobs, who played crew members and all the other ones. Jet has aged while the rest of his crew were in suspended animation due to a systems malfunction. Low on fuel and technology out of class, they go on a rescue mission to, are going to, to go to rescue a mining operation on Mars. Be deep recovery in progress. Welcome back to the real world, gentlemen. I trust you slept well? Like a baby. I might drop off again in here. Why is it so dark? Are the solar panels packed up too? The power's a bit low, so I've kept the lights off until things charge up. No problem. There's enough background light from the instrument panel to find our way around. Take a seat. I can hardly see your hand to shake it, but uh, here, Jet, put it there. Thirty-odd years since we left Earth, and you're still keeping us going in the right direction. Our progress has been painfully slow. Considering the impact we took, everything's held up pretty well. Well, apart from the aerial damage, the radio seems to be working after a fashion, so the batteries can't be too bad. I've had a couple of problems with the air recirculation unit, but it seems all right at the moment. Don't worry. I'll give it a once-over. Here, how come you got woken up first? You were in pod number four? There was a bit of a hiccup with pod number four. Hmm. The radio batteries are showing full power, so what's up with the light in there? Excuse me, Mitch, would you mind flicking that switch above your head? Oh, sure. I don't think that's a good yep, idea. Yeah, that one's working fine. Blimey. Like I said, there was a hiccup with pod number four. Glory be, Jet. When did the problem happen? Not long after we left Neptune. And you've been awake ever since? No, I've had plenty of sleep, actually, just not as much as you. You weren't in deep sleep suspension? Not for more than a few weeks. You've been running the ship on your own all this time? There's been quite a bit to do. Cripes. Incredible. Amazing you didn't go stark staring crazy. Well, I had my moments. So... How old are you? 72. But you're younger than me. Was. You were only eight years older than me. Now I'm old enough to be your fathers, both of you, so you better show some respect. This is Earth Savior Control calling Aaron. Please be advised that we have your landing coordinates. The host. This is set in the year 2079. Oh, we're in the future. 
and tells of a novel method of conquest by an alien species. This story was not written by Chilton, but by Julian Simpson, and it does show, um, while it is possibly better, better sci-fi, as an old fart, I miss Chilton's style. I'm awake. Oh, for the love of... <clears throat> Login ID, Morgan Andrew, Captain. Voice print wow. identification confirmed. Run systems check. All system functions verified. Date and time? May 17, 2079. 1451. Position? Sector 27B, stroke 6, heading 029. We're of course. Incoming red flag signal received. Emergency response protocol has been executed. Navigation and cryosystems override. In progress. Play me the signal. Mayday. Mayday. It's a fractal chic Kitano Cooperative Vadis. We've lost engine power and life support systems are failing. Please acknowledge. Unas Astonavisia Dvigatil. Okay. Wake up the others. Activating cryosystems override. Part 2. Uchal, Stephen. Science officer. Part 3. Matthews, Daniel. Medical officer. Part 4. Barnett, Lemuel. Communications officer. May 17th, 2079. The Aris was on course for Earth to carry out long overdue maintenance, but we have been diverted. We were awakened from cryosleep ahead of schedule because a red flag distress signal has been received from inside Saturn's orbit. We've been away too long now. The universe stretches out all around, and... Without some touchstone, some anchor, the sheer vastness threatens to overwhelm us. We need to get back to Earth and feel our feet on solid ground. But safe harbor is denied us as once again we find ourselves called to action. Shorten followed Journey into Space with two other radio series, Space Force in 1984 and Space Force 2 in 1985. Chilton had intended these to actually be a continuation of Journey into Space, but the BBC decided that they were too old and made him create all new characters. But in reality, all he did was change the names, and in true BBC style, they waited nearly a quarter of a century and then did a complete U-turn. And one Space Force Force character, Chippy Barnum, actually refers to his grandfather... Lemmy. Journey into Space is not available for free download. You can buy it from the BBC on CD, or Radio 4 Extra broadcasts them every so often in its seventh dimension slot, but you can of course record it off air. And if the BBC complains, then fuck them, as they have had to run appeals from, to members of the public who have recordings of BBC programmes that they no longer have as they were wiped. <laughs> okay, calm down, Paul. Bit of a hobby horse of mine, that. 
Well, that's it. And if you can't bear to go without my awful stumbling delivery until the next theatre of the mind, then you can catch me as DJ Frogs on spiritplantsradio.com. If you have been, then thanks for listening. And there you go, Paul. Thank you so much. Listen, there can't just be two left, man. You dig around, I'm sure. Dig deep in the sum. There's some in the bottom there. I'm sure you've missed some. Next up is The Descendant by M.J. Harris. This is like one of the first chapters, and it just kicks straight in the part of the story. This is, you know, putting basically putting yourself on show there. I'll put a link to M.J. Harris if you like this story, you like the kind of teaser of it. There you go. Do pop over and say hello to M.J. Harris and consider getting it. The Descendant by M.G. Harris Abu Sharain, Iraq, January 2003 In the midst of the desert, the weapon inspectors found a well. There was little visible sign of it, only a vague discoloration of the sand between rocks. A young airman's foot found it, and under the sun's scorching stare, it swallowed him. Powerful flashlights beamed deep into the void without sight of the bottom of the well. Light simply fell, apparently endlessly, towards the centre of the earth. Lieutenant Connor Bennett stumbled into the well. It was his first tour of duty outside the US. He'd hit the jackpot. He'd been escorting the team from the United Nations Monitoring, Verification and Inspection Commission. They'd crossed the desert near Abu Sharain, about 200 miles southeast of Baghdad. They'd poured over crumbled mounds, the ruins of the ancient city of Eridu. Deep inside the darkness of the well, Lieutenant Bennett's voice was clearly audible. Perched on a ledge about 20 yards down, He'd managed the drop with only an injured wrist. Moments later, he flashed his torch down to reveal a plunging void. The embarrassment of his tumble vanished, replaced by a rush of relief, the thrill of discovery. The political pressure to find concealed WMD, weapons of mass destruction, was increasing by the day. Each member of the team held their breath. This well appeared on none of the detailed maps of the region. It was long forgotten, or perhaps a well-guarded secret. The team made preparations to the background of an energised hum, quiet anticipation. Their gag counters had detected only a normal background level of radiation. If the weapons of mass destruction were indeed hidden down this ancient hole, they were effectively shielded. The managed descent of their infrared video camera was an exercise in patience and control. The inspectors gathered around the video monitor, which they had set up near the opening in the ground. Long minutes passed, during which the camera sent nothing but images of the wall. Wall, yet more wall. Then... Collectively, they blinked as an image burst onto the screen. The camera panned slowly, revealing the subterranean chamber. The lead inspector tapped the monitor, indicating an area of intriguing complexity. The camera zoomed in. The team members shuffled slightly as images appeared on the screen. Hieroglyphics? breathed one. The sole female member of the group, Dr. Harper Flesher, spoke. Not hieroglyphics. Cuneiform. Ancient Sumerian. Did the city of Eridu extend this far? Team members turned to Fletcher. She said nothing. The lead inspector frowned. Satellite scans had ruled out the existence of any underground structures this far from the main structures of Eridu, yet there was no denying the images on the monitor. There were buildings down there. From what he could see on the monitor, these remains were remarkably well-preserved. I need volunteers to go down. Lieutenant Bennett watched as Dr. Fletcher's eyes came to rest on him. With a mere blink... Bennett acknowledged her silent instruction. He stepped forward. Let me go, sir. The lead inspector peered from under his baseball cap at another of his team. 
How about it, Adams? You want to make the discovery too? Bennett waited, wondering why Fletcher hadn't volunteered. That had been their agreement, quietly made at the airbase that morning when in front of his superior officer she'd shown Bennett her CIA identification card. I'm representing the National Reconnaissance Office, Airman. If I need assistance, you're my guy. He could see Fletcher breathing lightly through open lips. She looked watchful, tense. He leaned back as one of the team attached a winch to the equipment which stood over the shaft, then clipped one end of the rope, first to the weapons inspection team member called Adams, then to Bennett. They began to low Adams into the shaft. He vanished into the gloom. Bennett followed, no more than a minute behind. When Adams reached the bottom of the well, he called out. Bennett could see a flashlight dancing against the wall below. It disappeared down a tunnel as Adams began to walk. Bennett switched on his own headlamp, watched the light bounce back against the rock, less than one yard away. There's a bunch of inscriptions, came Adams' voice. Some kind of chamber. Looks like we got some of them, uh, what are they called? Sarcophagi, yeah. We got some kind of burial thing going on here. Bennett's boots hit the ground. He unclipped the rope, drew his weapon, took six steps down the tunnel following Adams. Then he heard it. Air sucked in, a brief gasp of astonishment. Within seconds, the sound had been transformed into a wail of abject terror. A scream of pain followed. For a moment, fear gripped Bennett, held him breathless against the wall. Adam's voice rang out, piteous, horrified. Oh, God, help me, please, help me! In another second, Bennett overcame his own reluctance to budge. He rounded the corner into a hollow in the midst of space. Dark shadows which hid the walls that Bennett could instantly see were man-made. In the middle of this blackness, Adams had fallen to his knees, a helmet light beaming from his forehead, his voice a prolonged scream of agony. Caught in the beam of Bennett's own flashlight, dark fluid streamed from his eyes and mouth. Bennett couldn't move. What did you do? But Adams could only turn to Bennett, his features now gruesomely disfigured by the blood pouring from openings in his face. From Adams' hand, an object fell, clattered to the ground, and vanished into the shadows. Bennett stared, struggling to regain the use of his own voice. In his earpiece, he could hear the demands of the lean inspector above. Everything he saw was being transmitted to a monitor on the surface, where the team watched in silent, disbelieving horror. What's happening, Lieutenant? Report, now! Bennett's voice was barely above a whisper. Sir, there's something in this room. The voice in his ear ordered. Get out of there! Don't leave me! Adams begged. The words were barely audible as he began to choke on his own blood. Bennett wanted to go, but his legs wouldn't obey him. Instead, he found himself reaching out, taking the hand of the dying man. The light from his headlamp kept catching fragments of the walls in its beam. Wherever the light fell, he saw inscriptions. A moment later, it was over. Adam slumped to the floor, landed with his face on one side. Bennett couldn't take his eyes off him. So much blood. What was the explanation? A booby trap? Poisonous gas? What the hell is going on down there? Adams is dead. Then he heard Fletcher's voice. Aaron, report. Bennett began to back away from the body. Is it WMD? insisted the inspector. Bennett, did you find the weapons? Shaking his head, Bennett spoke into his microphone. It's not WMD. The lead inspector stifled a curse. Bennett began properly to examine the chamber. If there was some kind of poisonous gas, why hadn't it affected him? His foot touched the floor. Something was there. The object had fallen from Adams's fingers. Was that the source of the poison? He aimed his flashlight directly at the object. It was flat, roughly six inches long. It appeared to be made of some pale alabaster stone, its surface covered with inscriptions. Cautiously, Bennett turned around. 
In the centre of the chamber was what looked like an altar. The chamber had to be ancient, maybe thousands of years old, yet something within was still very much operational. There's a reason they don't want us down here, Bennett murmured into his microphone. This is something worth hiding. He wondered again about Fletcher, her last-minute reluctance to enter the chamber. He stared into the dead, blood-soaked eyes of Adams's corpse. Only an airborne toxin could have ravaged the inspector's body so swiftly. Bent had never been more than two yards away, surely close enough to be affected. Why wasn't Bennett dead? Chapter 2. Vial in Pocket Thin brown air simmered over Mexico City. Jackson Bennett leaned against the airplane window, pressed his cheek against the cold glass, gazed down at the city below. A dull ache was in his guts, as though a cold stone had become lodged there. The anxiety wouldn't go. He took a gulp of iced whiskey from his plastic tumbler. A burst of acidity rose from Jackson's stomach as the liquid hit. Within seconds, though, the alcohol behind its soothing effect. He drank again, eager for relief from the unsettled thoughts. He plugged the earphones of his iPod back into his ears and ran his fingers over the screen. He selected an Eminem track, Mockingbird. He hadn't planned to think of his brother Connor, but he did so anyway. He remembered the Christmas three years ago, when they were still talking, when Connor had given him the CD. Connor was older by a matter of minutes, but he had a way of making Jackson feel at least ten years younger. Now they were both nearly thirty. How could it be that his twenties were going to run out soon, when it seemed like yesterday that he turned eighteen? The airplane juddered as the undercarriage was lowered. The captain's voice broke in over the in-flight entertainment system. We're just making our final approach to Benito Juarez, Mexico City Airport. Please adjust your watches to the local time of 10.45am. May I take this opportunity to thank you for joining us on this Mexicana flight from San Francisco. In the right pocket of his jacket, Jackson's fingers located the tiny objects of his disquiet, two small plastic test tubes. Each contained a mere droplet of liquid, droplets which could land him in jail if discovered, or at the very least in serious proceedings with the customs authorities. But age was theoretical. Jackson had never faced any serious consequences. Maybe this was the blissful naivete of the inexperienced, or maybe there was something special about his instinct for survival. After all, he reflected, wasn't his twin brother a decorated US Air Force captain, a veteran of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? His brother had been fight flying fighter jets since he left college, and always at war. If Connor Bennett had something special which helped keep him safe, maybe Jackson had it too. <laughs> There you go. Like I say, link is on to MG Hounds the Descendant. A big, big thank you to everyone who's kind of taken part in today's show. And a big thank you to all, you know, who's going to go over and, and check out District of Wonders, you know. And please spread the word. That would be lovely this week. Just spread the word of District of Wonders. Tell everybody, do you know what I mean? Stand in Asda Winder <laughs> with a sign saying go to District of Wonders would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Storm Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Double set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.